0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to this special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and James Forsyth to ask the key question, is the Conservative Party now ungovernable? And to we'll start off by looking at the events of Wednesday night, the failed whipping operation on the fracking vote. And James, just talk us through what we saw then and the real problems now of within the Conservative Party of people basically not being able to obey the party line. So I think the remarkable thing
1: is, you look at what actually ultimately ended up costing... Liz job, but obviously the 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 big things that the unravelling of the mini-budget. But on Wednesday, she had PMQs, and everyone said, oh, what, what is she going to be able to get through that? She got through that. Then she had her home secretary resign. She got through that. But ultimately, what did for her was a dispute over the whipping arrangements in a vote on fracking and the question of whether the chief whip had resigned or not. And I think that's revealing because it kind of tells you the kind of challenge in terms of leading the Tory party because the problem essentially there was that... Labour very cleverly put down its opposition day debate. And you were trying to then free-line whip Tory MPs to vote for something that wasn't in line with the Tory manifesto. The government then added an amendment to it, which essentially rendered the government's policy, because it it was fracking but with local consent. And it defined local consent in such a way that there was nowhere in England for local consent. And so people felt this was pointless. And then they announced that they would take the whip off anyone who wasn't prepared to vote for it at which point you know chris skidmore who's written books of Liz trust who who flipped from backing rishi sunak to back her and the leadership contest said, well i'm perfectly happy to lose the whip if that's what it takes to vote against fracking and then graham stewart said from the dispatch box at number ten, urging no no this isn't a confidence vote at which point the whips went crazy and i think it's i think the scenes in the voting divisions which were you know let's just be realistic you know they were nothing compared to what you would have seen in the 1970s in parliament i'm not i'm not excusing them i'm just saying that in the contextualizing them and at the end of that evening you had a remarkable outburst from charles walker and just he basically lighting into all of his colleagues who voted who voted for and strat leadership election, and not saying, "Oh, why did you vote for this candidate with this particular view of economics, but suggesting that they'd all done it for self-interested reasons. And that you know, and I think that you know, the question there is,, you know, how do things like that? get put aside you know but parties are you know people often say like families but some things that are said are quite hard to forget and i think the, the question becomes you know have the resentments and tensions in the Tory party that have built up over the last 12 years while they've been in office and particularly i would argue in the last six years with all these changes of prime minister that you've seen in that time you know can time and calm be the great healer or is the party a? Appro- you know, is there so much poison in the bloodstream
0: that it's approaching toxic shock I suppose a lot of this discussion is about the Tory psychodrama, but equally, James, isn't there also an institutional question here, which is how does whipping work in an age where everyone's got a phone, they can take a photo, and you know, as Chris Bryant did, and then it out, and does the whipping operation work in the modern 21st century?
1: So I think there are two things I'd say. I remember once, when the Tories were in coalition, being at dinner with someone who worked in Downing Street, and a newspaper would run a story about something the coalition might do, which was a Lib Dem ask and this person who had been around in politics for a fair amount of time said well what am i meant to do 20 tory mps or something had already tweeted that they wouldn't be voting for it it was it was a kind of very lib dem policy which is kind of almost designed to what in it so it obviously is difficult and the the old line that the whip's office is kind of can't decide whether it's an hr department or sandhurst you know that is still true i think and there is big challenges about you know especially in an era which is rightly more concerned about inappropriate behavior you know in the old days whips used to write down inappropriate behavior in in a little black book and use it as useful material with which to get people to vote the right way nowadays you obviously couldn't do that not just on moral grounds but because it kind of comes out and would cause you more problems and so I think mean, that's that. Said, but I also do think this, which is I remember in either 2012, or 2013, at the height of a kind of troublesome time at the Cameron yet, I was having supper with a veteran of the Whip's office. And he said, it's all going to be absolutely fine. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, 18 months out from a general election, the party becomes self-whipping. And I said, oh, come on. I made all the arguments that you're making. You know, this, isn't, this isn't true in this modern era. They, they're all social media. They've all got their own campaigns. It's not going to happen. And then things did go quiet. And after the Tories won their majority in 2015, he he took me aside and said, you know, basically, accurately, you you underestimated this power of self-whipping in that the Tory party basically did behave. I think Andrew Bridget even took his letter out on David Cameron. The Tory party did behave for the year or so in the run-up to that election and therefore presented a much more united front to the electorate than than you would have expected in 2012 or 2013.
0: But isn't there a case of diminishing returns whereby after 12 years that's very different from four years in government?
1: Yeah, there is obviously that. And look, if a political party decides that it would prefer a stint in opposition to being in power, then there is very little anyone can do. I don't think that... I mean, I think the Tory party has flirted with that in recent months, but I don't think it has crossed that Rubicon yet.
0: Katie, what was your thoughts on uh, Wednesday night and the current state of the party?
2: I think the party is approaching ungovernable at the moment, and I don't know what is going to change that. I mean, I think clearly Liz Truss made a series of mistakes as Prime Minister. But even if you took the not-so-many budget off the table, I think she had things which increased the speed by which she lost political authority. But anyone who took over was going to have problems with the Parliamentary Party. It's very divided... I think there's just so much poison and bad blood in the party from being in government for so long and also just how turbulent politics has been that it's really hard to work out what the unifier would be and lots of MPs started off saying we're going to get behind the next leader because we just look ridiculous to get to get rid of them again and once again they're saying well we couldn't get behind this trust but we will get behind the next leader because we'd look too ridiculous to get another leader I think once you do it once so it was a really interesting piece I think by George Brandis the former Australian High Commissioner for The Spectator he had a warning to him he's not to get rid of trust now obviously they did not listen but <laughs> It was arguing that you don't want to have an Australian-style system where it's easy to get rid of leaders because doing so causes lots of problems for the political system. And each time you do so, it releases poison. And Boris Johnson back, as I remember um, two days before Boris Johnson was forced out, when it looked as though it could be on the cards, but someone saying... One of Boris Johnson's close supporters said, if the party do this, they are going to unleash things they cannot put back in the bottle. And I think we are seeing some of that. And even, I think, by moving against Liz Truss when they have, what Liz Truss thought would keep her safe was the fact that there was no candidate they could all get behind. Once again, as was with Boris Johnson, the party ultimately decided things were so bad, they would, as the leader, worry about the successor later. And we're now in a situation where... If Boris Johnson gets in, you could see a series of MPs resign the whip or refuse to work with the new Prime Minister, or the old Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak too would have a similar thing. So I think if you look ahead to Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, I think both candidates are going to face a bloc that doesn't want to work with them. And you can talk about unity, but, and you know, the idea of getting the band back together is harder to do. And therefore, I think when you look at the voting scenes this week, something like fracking was always going to be contentious. But in terms of pushing any reform through, on planning, on other issues, that is all going to divide the party. And it isn't clear to me this party has enough discipline or coherence in terms of what, it's, what it is trying to achieve as a government to actually push through a lot of this. And it feels to me, and James will know more about this, but you know the, the Cameron Osborne era, there was more of a joint purpose and therefore there was tighter discipline. Whereas you have a situation where... These MPs, I think, partly uh, from the pandemic, they're quite used to almost the government stepping in when things go wrong. And we have a situation now where actually spending cuts, is the party going to wear it? I mean, they really have to at this point because of the situation. But it's just adding to this sense where I think there will always be a group, in a way, speaking up and trying to rebel.
1: I think you can... I think mean, you can think back to a kind of halcyon era and get things right. I mean, remember the 81 Tory MPs who voted for an EU referendum in defiance of the party whip, which forced Cameron into his, his referendum pledge. I think in some way, where Katie is undoubtedly right, is that in the Cameron Osborne era, so first of all, austerity was the kind of joint Tory project, and it was easier because you could blame it on Labour. However difficult and painful this is, it, it's their fault in the murder comments. And there was also a a kind of pressure valve to release some of the pressure, which is they were in coalition. So Cameron could do a lot of... I remember once there was a whole thing about prisoner voting and basically that they let Tory the MPs go and vote against prisoner voting which they weren't going to do because it was one of these backbench business debates they didn't normally let people vote they decided they were going to do so because they needed to let some steam out of coalition tensions and I remember I made the very bad decision to try and go and buy a cup of tea at the same time as they were going to vote and kind of almost the herd was moving at such, with such delight to go and vote for what they thought was a very the kind of, kind of red meat law and order conservatism you couldn't do in coalition that they were, they were very happy about that I think the the big question is you know these currently dire polling numbers for the Tories have one of two effects right and I don't think you can know which one it is one is that everyone goes into every man for himself mode right and they basically people think I will fight for my own constituency and I will say whatever I can to try and help my own position. And if that involves criticising the Tory government or Tory colleagues or what, you know, I will do that. I I will try and fight as my own man and kind of hang on as a one man or one woman party. The other is people look and think, crikey, this actually is existential now for the Tory party if we can't pull back up you know, into the 30s or the 40s, then we are really looking at a kind of worse than 97-style wipeout. And that actually imposes discipline because people think, hang on a second, if we don't stick together, we're all going to hang separately.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned discipline, of course, back in 2019, when there was some some similar comparisons to what's going on in terms of a very divided party on Brexit, a divided parliament. At least you had Jeremy Corbyn to concentrate the minds, the spectre. And, you know, you mentioned the coalition, you had New Labour.
1: But I also remember this, which is that, if you think back to 2019, the moment we all, I think, mean, knew that Theresa May's premiership was over, was do you remember that number 10 allowed, there was a, one of these motions to try and take no deal off the table. The Tory whips were whipping very hard against it, and number 10 allowed cabinet ministers to abstain. And it, it didn't happen, but that night there was speculation that the entire Whip's Office was going to resign. And it was at that moment, I think, that you knew that the Theresa May Premiership was over. I think one of the things that happens is when Number 10 and the Whip's Office start countermanding each other, it is a sign of a party that is about to fall over because if those two limbs can't coordinate, then the body the body is just so unbalanced it's, it's not going to be able to keep standing up.
0: And this is a feature of recent governments, though. I think Theresa May, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss have all had a lot of tensions between Number 10 and Parliament. I mean, there's a lot of people linking this to Brexit. There's you know, five prime ministers in six years, etc. What exactly? Has the nature of politics changed? Has politics become more rebellious because of the lack of breakdown of loyalty? Or?
1: Um, I think that, I also think a kind of element of the distance between, to sound very pretentious, not that I ever do, <laughs> the distance between number 10 and parliament has grown as our politics has become a bit more presidential. You know, and also the attempt... Again, I think probably overall a good thing. The attempt to give Parliament more sociable hours means that you know MPs don't perhaps know each other as well as they used to do. You know, back in the day, you know MPs dined together every night and were in the House often till you know eleven, twelve, one in the morning, and so they all knew each other much more deeply than they do now. Where it is, it is still not a normal job, but the hours are. You know, I was on the tube home the other night with a minister on Wednesday, who's got a Midlands constituency. He was heading to King's Cross to go back and see his kids and put his family to bed. You know, that's obviously a better work-life balance. But you know, back in the day, he would have been at you know dining club with other touring. But you know, you'd have built bonds that way. So I think there's a kind of question of how do you create. That, you know, again, it comes back to the the split, but the Whip's Office can't decide whether it's an HR department or a kind of bunch of regimental sergeant majors taking people through a Sandhurst course. But also
0: talking on that point about how homogenous the party is, isn't there a sense that the 2019 election gave the Tories all these new Red Wall seats with different demands, more public spending, for instance, and that there's a case perhaps that the coalition just can't hold together? So we're talking about Parliament, but also politically across the country. It's just a very different party in, say, the traditional kind of South safe seats to some of these new areas where perhaps there's different demands on policy agenda. You you come down to Katie Balls' Waitrose versus Little Tories
1: and you know that all those I think one of the things that is remarkable is how much anger there still is about that that description because I think you know as as Katie will talk to it it, it hit a nerve.
2: Yeah it's interesting I I wrote this column for The Guardian a few years ago now which was just about the divine in the party which I was trying to illustrate the divide on a trade deal, and this is back when the Tories were still saying there could be a UK-US trade deal. And I had one figure suggest to me that those who were seen you know, to be blocking attempts by Liz Truss, who was then International Trade Secretary, but I think Rishi Sunak was also seen at the time as being more in a camp, quasi-quartang. Those type of conservatives were seen as more pro this. They said, you know, the people blocking this, and that was seen to be more like George Eustace, Michael Gove henry Dimbleby, zach goldsmith they were uh, a bunch of trade protectionists and then i was trying to work out how to what would go with that so almost it went for little tory now every divide is a blunt one and people can always find problems with it the point was there were some mps like liz truss and also red wall mps who ultimately thought the trade deal was there to get the cheapest possible food on the shelves for their uh, you know for their constituents and that was the big boon whereas on the other side you had those who thought that actually know you have to think about more about protecting farmers and also the quality of produce and actually Brexit can be used to improve and you can almost have this eco green Brexit which improves welfare and environmental standards and um, which are loggerheads and it's quite mean, because even to this day, people who <laughs> feel as though no waitress protections to them are still pretty angry about the terms. And after it was used, it was then picked up and lots of people have used it since. So I think it's been used in speeches and also just became quite an easy divide. Now, differences on, on trade clearly is not a new thing for the Tory party. But I think with the 2019 coalition and also how large the party is now it is just hard to see what some of these MPs have in common with each other these days well thank you Katie thank you James and thank you for listening too